Aloha and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today I'll be speaking with Rob Williams, the originator of Psyche, k an amazing spiritual healing process for changing beliefs and habit patterns. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, holistic products for body, mind, and soul, and PurePlantEssentials.com, organic aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. Be sure to visit the iTunes store and subscribe for our complete lineup of shows on Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. And please tell others about us and take time to give shows you especially enjoy your rating on iTunes. This will help get our positive message out to the world. Rob Williams has a background in counseling and is president of the Meriden Corporation and director of the Site K Center International. For more than 14 years, Rob worked as a manager in the energy and telecommunications industries. After a spiritual awakening, he moved out of the corporate environment and began practicing as a professional psychotherapist. Rob explored many ancient and modern healing modalities for creating positive change that ultimately resulted in the development of Psyche K. Psyche K is a simple and direct way to change self-limiting beliefs at the subconscious level of the mind. Its goal is to accelerate both individual and planetary spiritual evolution by aligning subconscious beliefs with conscious wisdom. The result of the Psyche K process is a greater sense of purpose and satisfaction at all levels of being, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. Psyche K is taught worldwide by certified instructors. A schedule of workshops and listing of certified instructors is available on the Site K web- website. To learn more about Rob Williams and Site K, please visit his website at SiteK.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-K.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Rob Williams. Aloha, Rob. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you, KG. What a pleasure to be with you and, and your listeners. Thanks. So tell us about your spiritual awakenings, those pivotal moments that resulted in your developing and teaching Psyche. How did it all unfold for you? Well, as with most people, probably the, it isn't a quick answer, but I will do my best to compress the, a lifetime into, into uh, this moment where we're speaking. The, the main uh, shift, I think, came primarily when I was with the telecommunications um, company in Colorado, and it wasn't the telecommunications company per se that was uh, caused the shift. It was just the last in a series of steps that uh, Spirit had guided me to this place to get certain kinds of training and understanding. In this case, it was 14 years in the corporate world. So I had that background. I had my feet firmly planted on the ground in that way. But at the same time, my soul and my spirit were calling to me to say, there's more to life and the reason that you're here than uh, managing a cable television company. And, uh, and and there was, it turns out, quite a lot more. It was like some people who get really good jobs and they pay really well and they're really pretty easy to do. It's a, it's a gift and most people would really aspire to that. I did too as well because most of us are uh, working to make sure that our lives are comfortable and so on. But even with the creature comforts associated with that kind of, of job, uh, there was a profound discomfort in my soul and my spirit uh, urging me to be able to let go of the um, what appeared to be the security of that situation, certainly economically. But I was busy being economically prosperous and spiritually bankrupt, and that wasn't working out. So I, I listened more and more carefully to my uh, spirit in, internally and the calling that said, no, you, you need to 
you need to move on here. This was a, a part of your education in what you're going to do in the world and why you're here, but this isn't it, so we won't be stopping here any longer. We'll <laughs> be moving right along. So at, at a pivotal moment, I can't remember the exact day, but I can remember the event itself, having spent um, a lot of time dancing between the world I was in and the one that was calling to me. I finally crossed a mental line, if you will, an emotional line, to the other side where I knew that I had to leave uh, this, uh, this structured environment and literally jump into the void of purpose and find out what was there for me. And when that happened, everything, there were a cascade of events that began to occur. So what is Psyche? You talk about it as a kind of spiritual process with psychological benefits. What do you mean by that? Well, I see it that way now, uh, especially, and I talk more overtly about it as a spiritual process with psychological benefits, because 20 years ago when it began, in 1988 and 89, was the first um, contact in a way I had with this uh, idea of belief change at the subconscious level and what has become the body of work called Psyche. It actually occurred as a series of, I call them cosmic downloads, uh, ideas fully formed that were um, transmitted to my head where I could see them in a written form. Very interesting since I don't visualize well, never have. But in the cases of this transmission process, this work was very clear uh, visually to me until I typed it into my computer, in which case then these fully formed patterns disappeared in my head, but I, of course, had a hard copy of them. So, and in the beginning, I, I, I sort of I got that this was a profoundly spiritual process, but when I started to talk about it that way, uh, when I got to the point where I had sort of test-driven these patterns with myself to make sure they brought no harm to anyone and only good, and then began to uh, experiment with some friends of mine who were willing to be guinea pigs, and then eventually because only good came out of this process, integrated it into my private practice as a psychotherapist uh, in those days, and only good came out of that. In fact, spectacular good came out of that. I was finally convinced that I needed to be able to uh, to teach this work, and uh, and that was really the kind of the, uh, the direction that things took, and I wanted to make sure that what it was was real clear and that it was doing good things in the world, and, and I committed myself to I, I consider it a kind of shepherding process of it. I don't consider this an ownership process. On a technical three-dimensional level, uh, I could say that, but cosmically speaking, um, I was sort of at the right place at the right time in the cosmic queue and apparently had done enough preparation, personal preparation, spiritually and emotionally and so on, to, to be given this gift, which I've been giving away ever since. And that, like I said, that was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. In those days, it was it was trickier to talk about a spiritual process without confusing that with religion mm-hmm. and uh, saying, oh, well, if it's uh, spiritual, then it must be religion. Which religion do you belong to? And for me, spirituality was this huge, all-encompassing concept that invited the best of all religions to be a part of this concept. And even then, as I spoke uh, my spiritual truth at the time, uh, got bogged down in the classes uh, with uh, religious uh, uh, chit-chat, and that really wasn't what the course was about at all. So I tended to, at those times, de-emphasize the spiritual component, emphasize the psychological component, because everybody that came, regardless of their religious background or their beliefs or not non-beliefs, uh, all benefited from this psychological tool that could be used at that level to address uh, issues uh, that were emotional, physical, um, mental, uh, in every area of our lives, and I mean things like self-esteem and issues of uh, addiction processes going on, relationship difficulties, uh, prosperity issues, and so on. It's all the human experience we're, we're having here in three-dimensional reality. Mm-hmm. But as as things progressed over the years, 
the culture changed. And as it changed, I could say more about my truth about what this actually is. And these days, it seems that, to me, that spirit is clearly out of the closet. <laughs> Whether you're in a corporate environment these days where spirit and business are finding each other, or science and spirituality are finding each other, more and more, this kind of conversation we're having now is a mainstream conversation and not an esoteric conversation, uh, you know, privy to only just a few people who have uh, spent their lives meditating or such. Mm -hmm. So I see it now as I saw it then, but I can speak about it more openly. It is a sacred process, a spiritual process, a divine process designed to help us address this fundamental um, issue, which I've, I've come to believe is the source of virtually every psychological disorder or problem or emotional problem we have, and that is our apparent um, disconnection from, at least our belief in the disconnection from our own divine nature, that in fact, in fact, KG, we are spiritual beings having a human experience, and, and when you start to look at your life that way, and you realize that the spiritual component of you, the part that really animates your physical reality, is infinitely powerful and infinitely uh, focused on its true nature and the true nature of other people on the planet, you realize that if I can make that connection and it's palpable and it's ongoing, that would be the greatest gift because every message that that um, reality gives to my body and to my uh, world that I live in is one that you want to see reflected everywhere in the world so we can have a world we really want to live in, mm -hmm. literally bringing heaven to earth. Mm -hmm. So how long ago did you start off offering site case certification training? You have certified instructors all over the world. Yeah, that took a while. Uh, I felt pretty, um, can I say, covetous in a way, or nervous about teaching it to somebody else so they could teach it to somebody. I taught the classes so people could do it with everybody else, but I always, I thought for about the first 10 years that I was probably the only one that could really do the teaching part right. And, of course, that's not true, but that was my ego speaking, and, uh, and I realized that I was now a bottleneck for this marvelous information to be available to as many people on the planet who cared to access it. And that's when I finally surrendered that aspect of my um, my thought pattern and said, no, 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 this is completely wrong. You can't do this. You were given this gift. It must be shared uh, nationally and internationally. So that's about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I think it was now, I started certifying instructors to teach the work. Now, I was rigorous. Any of them would tell you this almost um, uh, sort of Grand Inquisitor style guy about getting through the process to be able to teach it because I really wanted high quality instructors. I didn't want, I didn't care about how many people taught it as much as I cared about who was teaching it and how qualified they were to do it. So this program of certification is a fairly rigorous program and I, I mean it to be so. Uh, while I don't any longer personally do the certification trainings, the person that does, who's been here since day one in terms of the certification process, a man named Larry Valmore, is part of our psyche community, uh, he's also very meticulous and very careful to be sure that before someone steps in front of a group talking about this information and teaching them how to do it, that he that they are uh, intimately qualified and mm -hmm. and uh, and that that's really an important thing to me is the quality of the dissemination of the information. Mm -hmm. So it's not diluted at all? Not at all. Yes. So why does Site K emphasize the importance of changing beliefs? Well, it turns out beliefs are ubiquitous. They are the foundation of all aspects of our lives. If you can think of any aspect, we'll pick one like self-esteem. Uh, 
whole self-esteem issue is a matter of beliefs. What your belief about yourself is or about belief about other people totally dictates your experience of, of life. Same thing with health, same thing with prosperity, same thing with relationships. How you perceive yourself, what you believe about yourself and others makes a world of difference in what your experience is. Mm-hmm. Very same earth, very same opportunities, but very different experiences for people depending on their perceptions and beliefs. Mm-hmm. So beliefs are ultimately the thing that needs to be addressed if you're going to have any long-term change in your life. And it turns out uh, a very important component of beliefs when we think about them uh, are not even at the conscious level of what we're aware of. We could sit down and have a conversation about, well, what do you believe? And I could spew out a whole bunch of things that I believe. My conscious mind is answering those questions. And the part that actually runs the show most of the time in our lives turns out to be the subconscious mind. And so Psyche focuses on changing the subconscious mind. That's correct, absolutely. That's where the, uh, the the main focus is on the subconscious because it turns out the latest understandings, just understood I think in the last five to ten years in the field of neuroscience, is that our subconscious mind actually dictates our behaviors and uh, and our actions at least 95% of the time. And that's an astounding figure if you think about it. Ninety-five plus percent of the time, our choices and our actions and our experiences of life are dictated by a part of our mind that's below the level of our conscious awareness. So these programs that we have, they start at, at actually at birth uh, and before, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, uh, are the things that are, it's like your software package running below the level of your awareness and it's dictating the printout of your life. So if you really want to make a significant change in your life, then I'd say you've got to get to the subconscious mind and make the changes there. That's That was the one and probably the very first revelation that this work needed to focus on in that level of consciousness and not just deal with positive affirmations, positive thinking are great, but they're all conscious mind activities, and it's the hardest possible way to make changes. Yeah, it works sometimes, but most of the time it turns out if people are honest with themselves, it doesn't work very well, and they're usually displeased with the effect so they just try harder and harder and harder. It's not supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be easy, but if you're yelling at the right the right part of the mind instead of the wrong part, the changes take place very quickly. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to force a change, then you've got a war going on inside yourself. If you can make friends with your subconscious mind, and actually that's a very easy thing to do, it'll be your best friend forever. Mm-hmm. So what is the difference between the subconscious and the conscious mind? Well, there's some significant differences that people uh, really should be aware of. Our conscious mind, which is the part that we think is talking when we say, I this and I that, uh, is really the volitional part of us. It's the one that sets goals, judges results. Uh, It thinks abstractly. It's actually a very creative part of us. It can imagine things that haven't happened yet. It can uh, process information in the past and the future. It thinks in terms of linear time, in other words. It's responsible for short-term memory. at the conscious mind level, we can process uh, maybe one, two, three events, maybe four events at a time, and remain reasonably focused on multiple things happening simultaneously. But after that, uh, the mind, that part of the mind isn't capable of processing so many events and so many uh, data inputs because, as it turns out from the neuroscience, the conscious mind processes at a speed of about 40 bits of information. That's four zero bits of information per second. 40 bits of information per second sounds very impressive until you compare it to the subconscious mind, which processes an average of 40 million bits in that same second. So literally the subconscious mind processing capacity is a million times faster 
than the conscious mind is. And that has huge advantages because your subconscious mind, as an example, uh, processes all of the data that goes on with just doing day-to-day living, getting up in the morning, breathing, respiration, digestion, uh, all of the functions of our body, a very complex machine. And if we didn't have a subconscious mind, our bodies could not operate because the conscious mind's not capable of operating at that level of, mm-hmm. of processing capacity. So, and again, the subconscious mind is, is different than the conscious mind because instead of being volitional as the conscious mind and the setting goals and judging results, it's really habitual. You could think of the subconscious mind as the habitual mind and you would be actually very correct. It monitors, as I said, the operations of the body, but it thinks literally. In other words, it takes things um, literally like uh, maybe a five-year-old child would who doesn't understand the nuances of language and doesn't understand what you mean by what you say, figurative phrases and so on. So you have to be pretty literal with it when you talk to it. Mm-hmm. It processes in present time only as opposed to the past and the future. So the subconscious mind is in the proverbial present moment only. That's good news, and it's also bad news. The good news is that uh, you've got something part of you paying attention to what's going on all the time constantly, and the bad news is it takes everything from what we call the past brings it to the present moment mm-hmm. and operates as if all of that's still real. That's mm-hmm. why an event in your past, let's say a traumatic event, mm-hmm. or a pleasant one for that matter, but for sake of discussion, a, an unpleasant experience took place in your childhood. As far as your subconscious mind is concerned, that experience and its effect are present right now. Mm-hmm. So that's why our experiences in the childhood can affect, can affect us so dramatically as adults in the present moment. Well, doesn't that make the subconscious mind a kind of scary thing to deal with? It would if you looked at it that way. So there are a couple ways to look at it. If you uh, take the uh, path that Sigmund Freud took, uh, nobody wants to go to the subconscious mind. It's the, the deep, dark abyss of repressed sexual desire. And, uh, and most people say they just don't want to go there. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at it in a more contemporary way, it's more like the hard drive of your computer. It's not malicious. It's not evil. It's not bad. It's not out to get you. It's just got old programs. So the issue is, if you get to the hard drive and you can change the programs there, then things print out differently, literally on your printer and literally in your life, once you make those changes. So I see it as a benign process. Um, It may have distorted beliefs because those are the conclusions you drew when you had experiences early in your life, and those experiences ended up with uh, perceptions that don't really serve you now. I call them limiting beliefs. And so when you change the limiting beliefs, you free yourself from that past experience. And as far as the subconscious mind is concerned, when it changes, the current reality is all the only reality it knows. It no longer is attached to or affiliated with or affected by that past event. You've literally given the past event a new meaning, and the new meaning is now what controls your behaviors and your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So how do we communicate with our subconscious mind? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that, uh, various uh, techniques to do that. The one that I use in Psyche because it's simple and, and portable uh, is muscle testing. Uh, that can be used in a variety of ways, but in Psyche, it's a simple and effective way for your physiology, your physiology of the body to report something that's going on that you can't see at the subconscious level. Remember I said earlier that uh, the subconscious mind controls the physical functions of our body. Motor function is one of those things. So in muscle testing, which is an experience used, um, a connection linked to the subconscious by many, many different disciplines, and it's used in many, many different ways. In Psyche, I would consider it probably one of the most conservative uses because what it is is a direct biofeedback link to the subconscious and its state of processing. For instance, if you're muscle testing somebody and you ask them to think of a stressful situation, the muscle response will generally be quite weak. 
because what it does is create an internal conflict or a stress response. Uh, then that actually what happens in that regard is the signal, the normal electrical signal that would be uh, sent from the subconscious mind to whatever muscle you're using for muscle testing would send a fully, a full strong signal, a complete signal, uninterrupted signal, and it would animate whatever muscle you're, you're, you're using for the muscle testing. If you're in a conflict experience, the signal to the muscle set is what redu is reduced, and therefore the muscle isn't as strong, not because your muscle mass changed, but the signal to animate it did. And since that's already a built-in experience naturally in the human body, we just use it by plugging into it and using it as a direct connect to the subconscious. Okay. Well, how long does it take to change a subconscious belief? Well, actually, that's really the good news. Uh, using Psyche, it takes just a few minutes, anywhere from five to ten minutes, generally speaking. And it really doesn't matter how long you've had a belief, because the first thing that people think of, five minutes, ten minutes, geez, I've had this belief for 50 years. Isn't it going to take a long time to change it? turns out it doesn't, any more than uh, the example I gave you earlier of the storage unit for your subconscious uh, for, for, the, uh, for your computer is your hard drive, and the storage unit for your mind is the subconscious. If you go into your computer and you pull up a document that's been in there, let's say you've had a computer long enough to have some really old documents. You've got 20 or 30 years old. So you've got, you got a document that's 20 or 30 years been in your computer, and you bring it up, and then you bring up another document that you only had in there just because you put it in there 10 minutes ago, and you want to edit those documents. The truth of the matter is it doesn't take any longer to edit the document that's been in there for 20 or 30 years than it does 20 or 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with our mind. Our mind isn't a deep, dark abyss, uh, as, as we got the, the notion from Freud that it was, and that the little people in there running around trying to make your life miserable. It turns out that's not really the way it is at all. All it is is energy patterns. I mean, that's what we are. We are photons of light held in an electromagnetic field. We're energy beings. Mm -hmm. What appears to be physical is illusory. It's not really what we are. If you get an electron microscope and start looking at us, we disappear pretty quickly and the further into our into our beingness that you uh, go the less is actually there mm -hmm. and this is just information from physics i'm not I'm, you know it's not something new but if you talk to physicists they'll tell you yeah it's pretty much it actually we're not here <laughs> you know we look like we're here but that's a perceptual illusion in fact einstein called it a kind of optical delusion of consciousness mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and so when you understand that that's the case, that we're energy beings and that we're really just changing the configuration of our energy patterns and we stop anthropomorphizing and, and saying, well, this little person in my head is trying to make my life miserable, uh, then all of a sudden change takes on a different uh, component, a different uh, way of thinking about it. And then it's not so tough. Then changing is shifting energy patterns of consciousness. And that's done with intention plus ritual, with some activity that gets the subconscious mind's attention, in other words, and then an intention invited, sent to the subconscious in a way that it can understand. And then it internalizes that, usually in just a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. So even belief that someone has held for a long time, doesn't it take a long time to change belief that, beliefs that maybe have become entangled with other beliefs and maybe inherited through one's family or culture? Yeah, it really doesn't turn out, doesn't really matter where the beliefs came from or how long you have them. Uh, or if they're really entangled with other beliefs? Or yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's like a entanglement with other beliefs means that if I set my subconscious mind to the task of, uh, say, changing a belief from I hate myself to I love myself, then in order for that to happen, every belief that is connected to the I hate myself message, which would have to be changed in order for the I love myself message to become true, 
is affected. It's affected by the subconscious mind. Those changes are made. Remember, this is the exciting part. Below the level of conscious awareness, at 40 million bits of processing power per second. That's the difference between, say, insight-based talk therapy, kind of therapy I was trained to do at the University of Colorado when I got my master's degree there, and the kind of work that I do now subconsciously with Psyche because you don't have to sort of identify and, and kind of read every document and analyze everything in order to make a change. The conscious mind is not the part that's making the change. It's simply the part that decided it wants to make a change. Remember, its job in our, in our lives is to set goals, judge results, to choose things. In other words, take a look at your life and say, well, that's not working so well for me. I think I'd like to change that. But then that's where its job essentially stops. It can't actually make the changes because of the complicated internal uh, subconscious world, which the subconscious is very comfortable in because of its enormous processing capacity. So that's why beliefs that have been held for a long time that may be tendrils or connected to many, many other beliefs can change in a matter of minutes when you've got sort of the, the mega processor on your side and you're doing these changes at 40 million bits of change process power per second. Well, what role does the collective unconscious play in creating individual and cultural change? Isn't there strong pressure to conform to mainstream thinking and ways of acting and behaving? Sure enough. Um, we do that all the time, and mostly the advertising community has um, is, is really on the forefront of understanding the subconscious mind because most of the advertising that takes place uh, is uh, connected to uh, impacting the subconscious as much or more so than the conscious mind. If you look at the kind of advertising we see in the industry, you see the kinds of activities and, and thought patterns and the way things are put together. When you study psychology a little bit, you find out that these are very, very clever and very effective ways of, of getting the information past your conscious mind to your subconscious where you'll respond. In a store, you'll, you'll look for a certain product. You'll look for a certain color. You'll be habituated to brand names. All that is cultural in nature. And yes, there, we all live in a cosmic soup called the collective unconscious and has other names also. It's like cultural field. spells. We're under a cultural spell. Yeah, in a way, the job is to wake up. And one of the things I think is a real gift of Psyche, instead of being a victim of all that, you can be the master of your own destiny. When you change your beliefs, you're out of it. You just stepped out of the matrix of consciousness, and you're creating a whole new reality. And if enough of us do that, then we create a different cultural norm, don't we? That's the whole thing about shifting consciousness. Yeah, I think that is my question. I mean, I think that people we are... Um, uh, uh, com community, you know, we like our community. Mm -hmm. We are social beings. And so I think that's why a lot of people don't uh, create change in their life is because it means, you know, if, if a friend, a family member, uh, you know, if they're, not, if they're not going to change, if you change, then you're no longer, you can no longer really be a part of that family or a part of that group. And so you, and that's scary for people. Sure, sure. And I would say that's typical. Um, the, the society historically is seldom if ever changed because the masses of consciousness, the individual people change. There's usually, as Margaret Mead said, most change in the world takes place by a small group of committed, dedicated mm -hmm. visionaries who hold the new vision until it becomes the, the, the common vision. So, yeah, there are leaders in change, there are followers in change. Mm -hmm. But I'm speaking to the leaders. I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to your listeners. Everybody has the capacity to become a leader of change. Everybody so it does mean care. that is part of what would happen, though, is that you may no longer be a part of a group or a part of a – that may shift. You may Absolutely. shift out of 
And a couple things can be the case there. One is, when you change the way you are in the world, you're affecting other people. Remember, the collective consciousness works two yeah. ways. It's not a one-way street. Yeah. So when you're presenting a higher version of yourself mm -hmm. and inviting people into your world as you've evolved, many people will be influenced by that world to move up to a different way of being. So in effect, you're already um, a master of change in that way. And the other part of it is sometimes in order to grow, in order to achieve uh, your own spiritual awakening, your own spiritual uh, fullness, you're going to have to shift groups. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like be having friends in high school and then saying, well, I'll never graduate from high school because mm -hmm. I don't want to lose my friends. Well, you're going to get new friends in college. And then you get new friends when you graduate from college and go into a professional thing. You're going to get new relationships sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes because, in effect, you outgrow those relationships. You can invite those people to move with you, but if you're going to let them dictate your level of spiritual awakening, then that's a choice you have, of course, but I would hope most people wouldn't make that choice. Mm -hmm. In your book, Psyche, The Missing Peace in Your Life, and peace is spelled P-E-A-C-E, -E, it says that with Psyche, you don't have to consciously know the cause or source of a problem in order to change it. How can this be? Well, it's really easy uh, to answer that question because, remember, we're dealing with the subconscious mind. So we don't need to know the cause consciously. Your subconscious mind already knows the cause subconsciously. It was there when the, when the program was installed. It was there when the perception was made about whatever the situation was and the conclusion was drawn that now drives your life in the present moment. That's really a helpful thing because if we had to know the cause of everything, then we've got therapy for 15 or 20 years to try to figure everything out from our past. But we don't need to go there. It's a much swifter, much faster, much less traumatic way of doing it. And that's to access the subconscious mind directly, give it an instruction that you want a new truth to be its current truth. It has to go find all of the files, essentially all of the old programs and tapes that keep that from being true and make the necessary changes. And if you're willing to not know everything that happened to pull it all together consciously, then change can be very, very fast. If not, yeah, you're going to slow it down by needing to run it through that 40-bit processor. So you say change doesn't have to be difficult and painful using your psyche process. What if the source of the problem has pain and trauma associated with it? Um, yeah. Will you be re-experiencing the event in order to change it with the psyche process? It's a really good question, and the answer is generally speaking no. And, and here's the qualifier. Because these, this information, your past and your memories are held in at the subconscious level of the mind, the ones that, let's say, are severely traumatic, that, that's a benefit of your subconscious. It generally won't let your conscious mind access those things or life would be miserable every day. So it, it um, relegates those to a level of consciousness below your conscious awareness. So if, let's say, an event was associated with trauma and it was associated in such a way that the only way to access the belief systems regarding that experience were through the trauma, then yes, you will have to experience some sort of unpleasantness, no doubt, at, and, but generally speaking with Psyche, it's short-lived and it's not nearly as intense as if you go back, get into the whole experience and, and go with the philosophy that if I just, the more pain I experience, the more I'm going to let go. It's the no pain, no gain theory. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's a whole other way of looking at it, mm -hmm. and that is that if the subconscious mind didn't associate the belief systems with the pain. And many, many times, as it turns out, over the last 20 years I've discovered, that's often not the case. You don't make the connection. You don't have to go back to the emotion. You just need to change the programs. And when the programs change, oftentimes there is no discomfort to speak of. All there is is a period of time when you're doing one of the psychic belief change processes, 10, 15 minutes later at the most, 
everything's different. Then if you go back and consciously think about that situation in the past that was traumatic, you'll find that the links between it are gone. The memory is still there. It's not like you forget that that ever occurred. But its effect on you changes, and that's the power of changing the perception of the subconscious Yeah, the story, the trigger, the energy you have with the event. Right. The trigger is is whatever it was, but the whole point about the past is it's not happening right now from our conscious mind's point of view. And all that we've got, the only connection we have to our past is a combination of memory and however uh, we coded that. In other words, whatever meaning we gave the experience, that's what's left of the experience. When we change the meaning by changing our perception of it, literally changing our belief about that experience and what the effect was, then we sever our ties to it emotionally so that it no longer gets to dictate our current experience. Mm-hmm. So how lasting are the results of change with Psyche? Generally speaking, very long-lasting. The only cases where I've seen where people revert back to an old behavior, old way of doing things, has to do with something called secondary gain. That's the name of it in psychology, which means if you were behaving in a certain way in the past, let's say uh, by being helpless or victimy, and you got attention for doing that, and then you make a change with psyche so that you're no longer victimy and helpless, but you all of a sudden you lose the attention uh, benefit, then I've seen some people revert back to the old way of being because they were going to get attention one way or another, and they weren't getting it in the context of their new behaviors, even, the, even though they were no longer helpless and, and all of that. So what you do in those cases is you, you, that gives you a direct, quick, Acknowledgement of, oh, that need was being met in that way. So every disability, in a way, is an ability to meet some need. So what you do is you really sort of feed it forward. You go back, you recognize that, okay, I was getting attention this way, dysfunctional as it was, at least I was getting attention. Mm-hmm. Then you write some new belief statements. You essentially internalize a new set of beliefs that drive a new set of behaviors so that you can get attention without having to be helpless and, and miserable, you know, mm-hmm. or hopeless and having people to save you all the time. You don't have to do any of that. There always are new ways to meet the same needs. You can't negotiate the needs out of existence. All of us human beings have these basic needs, but you sure as heck can decide how you're going to get them met. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about learned helplessness. Right, yeah. Yeah. So what's the Psyche process like? Can you describe it? Is it like positive thinking, affirmations, prayer, or meditation? Not really. It's, it's, it could be construed as being a little of all those things in a way, but the real big difference is uh, you're actually using your own mind. You're creating what I call a whole-brained state. That is to say the left and the right hemisphere of the brain key function, uh, have, have key functions themselves. Mm-hmm. When they are working together mm-hmm. in this whole-brained state, literally activated at the same time, Life is real different. Your capacity to respond to your environment, your capacity to be creative, your capacity to be compassionate, your capacity to be, your capacity to be logical and, and uh, all that, all of that is available to you. Unfortunately, during our experiences in life, we generally learn to over-identify in a given situation with one hemisphere or the other. Like you, all of a sudden you can't get to your right hemisphere and one of its key qualities is emotion. Mm-hmm. And you can only get to your left hemisphere and it's logical. Or the reverse is true. You can get to your emotions, but you can't get to your logic. Uh, Left hemisphere is the primary speech center in the brain. So when you're busy being real emotional, oftentimes you can't find words to express it. Or if you get over to the word side of your brain, you can't find the emotions connected to the words. So over-identifying with either hemisphere of the brain in a given situation, we're limited in our capacity to respond to life's challenges and opportunities. Mm -hmm. So in Psyche, a key component of the processes are called balances, literally because they 
misidentification between the left and the right hemisphere. It creates a very, very user-friendly state of consciousness for internalizing new beliefs with virtually no, no uh, resistance. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things can be changed using Site-K? Just about anything. Remember, it's a belief system change process, and then the outcome is behaviors change, and then the world changes, because that's exactly what happens. If we can behave differently in the world, we get a different response from the world. But the first thing to do is to change your beliefs so that you have the behavior available to you, so that you're not at war with yourself. So like the book mm-hmm. title says, you get to be at peace with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if your subconscious mind is aligned with your conscious goals in life, then life seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy instead of a day-to-day struggle. Mm-hmm. When there's a misalignment, when your goals are not supported by your subconscious beliefs because your subconscious beliefs are outdated, your goals are contemporary, represent your current wisdom and, and your current skill sets, then all of a sudden the war isn't outside of you. It looks like it to you. It looks like you sabotage yourself. People aren't uh, helping you get what you want. Life seems like it's really, really hard. It gets a whole lot easier when those beliefs get aligned. With, when your wisdom, whatever that is that you possess at this time in your life, is internalized in such a way that it prints out automatically. Remember, the subconscious is the habitual mind. What you want is a whole set of really good habits that reflect your current wisdom. One thing I ask people um, oftentimes when I, when I teach is, why is it that your life doesn't look as smart as you are? And the answer is, generally speaking, there are people kind of dumbfounded and go, yeah, well, that's true. You know, I know better, but I don't do better. I've read the books. I've got lots of wisdom about how to lead a really uh, wonderful life, but I notice I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's this big discrepancy between what you know and what you do, mm-hmm. and that is almost always a direct reflection of a misalignment with your wisdom is, is the conscious mind. That's the part that reads the books and says, well, I want to do this, and here's a good goal, and I believe this, and I want my life to be a reflection here and there. But your subconscious mind, if it's running off of um, ancient software, so to speak, and is misaligned with those goals because that's not the goals you achieved or you internalized in childhood, then it's then you're at war with yourself. There's mm-hmm. no peace inside. Mm-hmm. So what about physical things like illnesses? Can Psyche help heal physical disease? Do you have any stories to share with us about using it with physical issues? Yeah, the, the, the uh, literature, the scientific literature on this mind-body connection is really quite profound. Um, it actually comes out of a field called psychoneuroimmunology, and it is a reflection of how do thoughts turn into chemistry which affects various aspects of our physiology. And a good friend of mine and a colleague I work with is Bruce Lipton. Bruce wrote a fabulous book called The Biology of Belief, which is really, I think, in, in contemporary history, uh, the most amazing book to let you know how thoughts turn into biology and how they can influence your health. So we've been working together for about nine or so years now, and we just did um, a, a process, of a, a four-day event, for instance, in uh, San Francisco. And there was a woman that came there that had come to the previous one last year, and she had a story that just blew everybody away regarding how she had used this information and how she had used Psyche specifically. In her case, she had a, a bone marrow uh, problem, a disease, and the prognosis was really grim. And all the statistics and, and, and the uh, tests showed that she didn't have um, long to live, and the doctors weren't hopeful at all. And what she did is she used the time in the class to address those physiological issues using Bruce's understanding of your thoughts have a direct biological impact on your physiology, and that affects your immune system and your body's capacity to heal itself. 
So in her case, because that was the pressing issue for her, she created a belief statement, in fact, a couple of them, that she internalized subconsciously, which apparently shifted the instructions that the body was getting, literally telling it how to be in this condition, to a different set of instructions, ones that indicated health. And turns out, you know, a year later, she's back saying, here I am and I shouldn't be, and it turns out all my tests are, are, are normal. I no longer have this dreaded disease. Mm-hmm. And that's one example, but there are hundreds of them, uh, at least that many. I mean, I don't get to hear all of them because I, not everybody contacts me that has these wonderful experiences, but I certainly have a file full of them. So it, it can be used for everything. At that, on the physiological level, since our thoughts uh, dictate much of what our physiology does, uh, and the science shows that's clear, there, as far as I can tell, there is no real limit in how it can be used to include, be included in a medical process. You go to a doctor, you get a diagnosis, there's a health uh, regimen that you're, um, that's suggested by the physician. My um, take on Psyche is that it should be part of those regimens because when the mind is working toward wellness and whatever medications you're on, whether they're um, uh, pharmacological or uh, uh, nutraceutical-based or any kind of help in that regard, uh, the mind is your best friend when it comes to making all that stuff work well and, of course, working towards the goal of having people be in optimal health. Mm-hmm. So what about anxiety and fear? What can Psych-K do to resolve chronic patterns of fear and anxiety that maybe are inherited? It's just a ancestral, you know, your, your mother was anxious, your grandmother, it was just everyone was anxious in your family. Or what about anger and rage, those sort of chronic sure. patterns of emotion? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, chronic patterns are just uninterrupted energy patterns. So they're still energy patterns. Mm-hmm. When we make them into something that they're not, then it sounds like a, a you know a, you're sort of doomed from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a genetic pattern. One of the beautiful things about Bruce's work is he shows that we don't pass things along genetically as often as we do psychologically. Mm-hmm. So, and if it's a psychological issue, in a sense, you're you're inviting people. The kids are trained in an environment where they see the parents behave in a certain way. Uh, chronic anxiety is part of you're bringing up your 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 whole upbringing if that's the case then your perception of the world is what causes these anxiety experiences and when you change your perception sure enough the anxiety responses change so you can stop this uh, hand-me-down uh, limiting belief thing anytime you are aware enough of how to do that and that's part of what psyche is on the planet to do mm-hmm. so through changing the belief you shift the perception how you're perceiving right things so have you used Psyche like with criminals or those incarcerated in prison? Actually, I've had one experience. I haven't worked personally in prisons, but there was an experience that we had with um, a juvenile detention facility in uh, New Mexico, and this was probably four years ago or so. And a couple of the instructors, the Psyche instructors, went to the prison actually and worked with some of the uh, guards and, and with a small group of prisoners. But the more interesting part, the reason we got to do that at all, was that we had done some work with uh, these juveniles and actually, this will, this will be a stretch for some of your listeners, perhaps, but we did it at a distance. We never went to the prison, but we, I was in, conjunct, I was in uh, communication with the prison warden, uh, actually a, 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 psychologist, a psychologist, clinical psychologist at the time, and she had experienced Psyche herself by going to one of the workshops. She was so enthused by what she saw as one of the first things that would ever truly make a difference in the minds of these young people for during their incarceration period and also then, of course, when they got out of the prison situation, how to uh, reconnect to a normal social structure. So we did a long-distance experiment, and she had four groups of kids 
and she called, I forgot what they were called, but they were like uh, lodges, that was what she called them. So four different distinct groups of kids. Lots of statistics, statistics sorry about that, on, uh, on these kids' behaviors, when they were acting out, when they weren't acting out, acts of violence and so on. And it was a mind blower. When we worked with them at a distance based on just the lodge name, not the individuals and so on, it was like a way, you talked about this earlier, so maybe this will demystify it a bit. The collective consciousness of humanity is the collective thought patterns of everybody. But you can isolate a group of people, whether it's a corporation or a group of kids in prison, and the collective consciousness of that group can be isolated from the collective, so to speak, and it's kind of a, a way to connect with just that level of consciousness. And that's what we did. The process is called surrogation. It's actually taught in the advanced psyche mm -hmm. course. So it's not just something I do or, you know, three people do. It can be taught to everybody to do. Point is, we made the connection. We monitored the, she monitored the uh, difference in these kids' behavior for a month, and there was a dramatic reduction in the two groups that we worked with compared to the other two groups in, term, in terms of their violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, it dropped by something some outrageous thing, like 40 or 50 percent in those two groups. We never actually talked to these groups consciously, but we did this work at a distance in this way. Mm -hmm. That convinced her that there was something going on here that should be explored. Because if it was possible to interact with these kids at a distance, what would happen if we were able to teach them how to do this sort of thing for the rest of their lives so that when they got out of prison, when they ran into difficulties of adjustment in the social structure or they were running old programs from their past, which are the ones that put them in prison in the first place, mm -hmm. then they could change those things. So I think there's a huge benefit to the potential for Psyche to be used as a transformative tool in the prison systems mm -hmm. worldwide. That would be fantastic. So what about using Psyche with young children? Is Psyche effective and safe for young children? Do you have any stories about your results using Psyche with young children? Well, I've had, as an adult counselor, I've had limited experience personally with children, but there's a whole movement going on within Psyche right now, which just excites me to no end. There are about three or four instructors who specifically want to develop this work for working with young children. They might call it Psykids, <laughs> and they're... Uh, people who have this strong affinity for being able to get this work to these young people in a hurry when they have less baggage. They're not mm -hmm. on their third marriage and their second uh, right. divorce or whatever it is. You know, they're, they haven't gone bankrupt two or three times and have all this cosmic baggage <laughs> to carry around. Kids are beautiful to work with. A few that I have been able to work with personally and professionally have been a delight because kids are transparent. They see the truth in something or they walk away from it. And uh, they don't have all the sophisticated mechanisms for trying to couch their uh, feelings in, in some way that doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. They tell you what they think. And I love them about them. I love that about them. When I worked with kids, they went faster using Psyche than, than adults by far. I, I even did one class where we had about seven or eight kids uh, under the age of 16. Probably the youngest one was about eight, I think, and the oldest one was about 17. And I mixed them in with the adults because the class was about 40 students, uh, and, and those kids were included. And in short order, by the end of the morning of a two-day workshop, I realized that wasn't going to work because the kids were bored. They just went and did the balances, and then when they were done, parents were still spilling their guts about their, their worst experiences in life and wanted to process. So I, I had to charge the, the care of these uh, kids to one of the other instructors that was there, and they went off and did their stuff. And when they were finished with their balances, they did fun things. They went out and played. They went and got ice cream. <laughs> you know, so it, if we could just be more like kids, it would be a much easier world to live in. Mm. So what about couples? What are your results with couples having problems in their relationship? 
Yeah, I've worked with a lot of couples over the years, and it's really quite amazing because there's something in the advanced course called um, a relationship balance, and it, it really is a sort of magical process for couples. It, it lets them connect with each other in a very different way uh, to create a whole brain state between them. So when they get into their old patterns, when their old patterns are triggered, the buttons get pushed, so to speak, and they're running old patterns from their biological family or from the last uh, relationship they were in or the one before that or the one before that and so on. It's all it's a whole bunch of people in every relationship, especially if you're over 40 uh, and you've had a few relationships. Everybody shows up, and then as soon as your the conscious part of your relationship, the sort of honeymoon part, uh, goes away and, and you stop being constantly hypervigilant about being the best you can be, then the old patterns tend to kick in. And as soon as they do, it's as if, you're looking at this person wondering, well, who the heck are you? You know, you're not the person I met a year ago and have been dating, and what is all this stuff you're producing right now? And that's when the old patterns show up. So the really good news about this is you can use it to change those patterns and deepen the bond in a relationship and come to a new level of respect and love and understanding no matter how long you've been in the relationship. Now, sometimes it ends up that after people get to this place and the dysfunction of the relationship is shifted, Sometimes people decide, well, and it's still time to go to a new level of life, that your lives have become so different and your interests so different that the really best thing for both parties is to separate and go in different directions. But you don't leave wounded. You don't leave with the animosity that you take then into the very next relationship. It's like taking poison from one relationship to another. So it can be used either to deepen the bond or to come to an understanding and lovingly let go of that relationship to move healthfully into another one. Mm -hmm. Getting beyond blame, yeah. projecting onto the other, and uh, becoming more integrated and whole yourself. I, I think, you know, we do. We are always meeting ourselves. Always. Yeah. So you say that permission protocols are an important part of psyche. Tell us about that. Extremely so, and this is one of the things that I think differentiates psyche from a lot of other modalities of change and healing, and that is that. There's a, the key component of it is the spiritual component. Um, in the classes, I generally refer to it as the superconscious mind. So there's a conscious mind, a subconscious mind, and a superconscious mind. If you think of the superconscious mind as your spirit or your higher self, in the psyche process, in all of them, there's a point at which you access the superconscious mind using muscle testing. You can still communicate directly. It's a yes or no system that we can set up that way. And you literally ask the superconscious mind before you make a change if it's really in your best interest to do that, if it's really safe and appropriate to make this change. Because how many times in our lives, think about it, be honest, how many times have you thought, I really, really want something or someone, and and I get them, and then I go, what in the world was I thinking? You know, That's where our our, uh, our saying comes, that, uh, that is, be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. This is the part of getting not only your conscious mind to decide whether what you want is worth wanting, but your superconscious mind, the part of you that has the highest vision of who you are and why you're here, giving you its feedback before you jump in to this new endeavor and uh, and chase it down and then wish you hadn't captured it. Mm-hmm. It could be anything from a job to money to a person to a career, whatever the thing is, it's good to get your input from that superconscious level before you move forward. And that way no harm can ever come to anybody with Psyche because it's your spirit that determines what's going to be done before it's ever done. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, can anyone learn how to do Psyche? What's involved with training? Well, there's a two-day, uh, generally a weekend-style uh, workshop, 
And for some people, that's all they ever need. They can learn how to connect with the subconscious, how to make belief changes, how to construct their own belief statements, how to talk to the subconscious to get a full, uh, full batch of information about the difference between the conscious and subconscious mind, and handouts that are very specific so that you can, when you walk away from the workshop, you can continue doing psyches often or as long as you care to. So in that sense, virtually anybody that has that can show up um, and has an interest. Uh, can learn Psyche. It's been taught to kids as young as eight years old, as I mentioned, and uh, people as old as um, 80. Mm-hmm. So anybody in that spectrum is interested in becoming a master of their own destiny instead of uh, really a victim of their past uh, would benefit from Psyche. Mm-hmm. Is the Psyche book a substitute for your workshop? I wish it was. It would make life a lot easier for <laughs> for me, but it isn't. I can't put experiences into a book uh, because books convey information. One-on-one experiences, or in this case, group experiences, even the best version of of the group experience, gives you so much more um, ability to understand, to learn, and to directly experience psyche under the supervision of someone who's trained to do it very well. Mm -hmm. Books are great for disseminating information. They're not so great for disseminating experience. Yes. Well, tell us more about your collaboration with Dr. Bruce Lipton. You just uh, you mentioned you just taught your annual uh, Psyche Intensive with him in San Francisco. Uh, so, so tell us about that. And when did you first meet Bruce? And did he take your Psyche training? Yeah, Bruce and I met about um, almost 20 years ago now. Come to think of it, uh, at a conference, we were both uh, speakers at this conference, and he watched me do a demonstration with a woman uh, who was afraid of public speaking. And she was terrified. I mean, she literally stood there on the stage with me because she had volunteered to come up and said she really wanted to make this change in her life. And, of course, her fear was right there because there were 120, 130 people, whatever it was, in the room. And it might as well have been a room full of snakes for a person who's afraid of snakes. It was the same thing for her. And so he watched me work with her for about 10 minutes doing one of the psyche processes you learn in the, the weekend workshop I just talked about and watched her fear melt away. And she'd had it all of her life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, she's talking to this group like they were her best friends, and she's so excited about this new capacity. She just talked and talked and talked, and finally, about five minutes into it, I just said, you know, excuse me, but I'm not finished with my lecture yet. I, you have to sit down now. And so it's kind of funny to all of us, including her. She realized she had forgotten her fear totally. So it turns out she came back for several years after that to the same conference, and Bruce and I were speaking at the same one. So we saw that she not only got over the fear, she actually went back the first year and began a, started her own Toastmasters group there. And uh, third time, third year she came back, she had become an award-winning public speaker. So that got his attention in terms of his work because Bruce's elegance is, and brilliance is being able to show you scientifically how you come to have the beliefs you have, that beliefs, beliefs are really the things that run our lives. It's not our genes that do it. The beliefs actually determine what genetic expression we experience in our lives. Genes don't run them by themselves. They're actually told what to do, but mostly by the subconscious, as it turns out. So we've been partnered up ever since to um, get people both the science and the application together. And it's one of the most powerful experiences I think um, certainly I've ever been a, a part of, and I really appreciate and honor him. He just recently received an International Peace Award. Mm-hmm. From, the Goy Peace Goy. Award. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Very prestigious. And uh, those people are really awake because they, they look at a guy who's a biologist and say, this guy really isn't just a biologist. He's a guy that frees you from the concept that you're a victim of your circumstances or your genetic heritage uh, and sees freedom as the capacity to be able to change your beliefs. Through changing the beliefs, will change the world. Mm-hmm. I understand you produced a video with Bruce and t- 
titled The Biology of Perception, The Psychology of Change. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was really fun to do. It's about two hours and 20 minutes long. Uh, it was done about eight years ago, I think, now, but the core information is still the same, so it's not outdated in that sense at all. Uh, Bruce does about um, an hour and 40 minutes or so of the science, and then I give an overview of Psyche and a demonstration of one of the processes in Psyche, one of the balances, uh, to show how quickly, when you know what you're doing, and that's the important part about the workshops, it looks real easy on the screen, but what goes into making it work is the part you don't see, and that's the part that's hard to put in a book, or I would. Uh, anyway, so that gives you a very good overview of both the science and the application, the possibilities of combining the understandings we have now, the latest understandings in uh, research in science and biology and in psychology, mm-hmm. with the ability to make these profound changes mm-hmm. in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. So can people actually, you know, through watching the uh, video presentation, have a shift in, in any of their perceptions or beliefs? Or Well, I, I'm sure you would have a lot of shifts in your especially the science, because in the shifts of perception, that's one thing. Shifting perception about what's real and what's not mm-hmm. gives you a gateway that can open up in your consciousness to say it's possible to be making changes that I didn't even think were possible. Mm-hmm. But if what you're asking is, can you learn Psyche from the 10-minute demonstration I give, the answer is, I wish you could, but you can't. Yeah. It's a two-day workshop, not stretched out. If you, if anybody decides to come and experience Psyche, the basic workshop, you'll see that it's jam-packed for two days with vital information that lets you then facilitate these changes in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close, Rob? Well, I think the main thing that I've learned over the years uh, about uh, being on Earth and and Psyche's uh, contribution to our global transformational process is that it, it really is uh, the pinnacle of the pyramid of change. Really, is our spiritual awareness mm-hmm. that to the extent that we can be that we can recognize our divinity and in each of us personally, then in everybody else, we'll be able to express our greatness. Because I believe everybody is here for a reason to make a contribution. Your gift could be being a really excellent parent, or it could be somebody who's going to be a world leader. All of it is important, but whatever your gift is, once you recognize your divinity, you'll discover your greatness, and ultimately you will be at peace with yourself. And I think if people understand that simple equation, recognize your divinity, you'll see it in others, you'll discover your greatness and see the greatness in others, and out of that we'll have a peaceful individual existence and collectively a global peaceful existence, then I think that's the message I would want to convey. Oh, wonderful. To learn more about Rob Williams and Site K, please visit his website at SiteK.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-K.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us, Rob. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you, KG. It's been a pleasure being here, and thanks so much for having me on.